We are going to conclude this morning our study in the book of Zephaniah. Just to remind you, a quick overview of the book, so we went through this in detail last week, but in chapter 1, it really speaks of the judgment that is foretold on Judah, as most of the minor prophets, either dealing with Israel or with Judah, the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. In chapter 2, we're going to see in a moment as we go through this, judgment is pronounced upon the Gentile nations, but God is merciful and gracious and warns them ahead of time that there is the opportunity to repent. And we see, and we'll see it this morning, Matthew 25. Um, what we have in chapter 2 is, as so often the case in Scripture, the dress rehearsal for the main event. So in chapter 2, it's the, the local nations around Israel, but it looks towards something that's bigger. And in, in chapter 3, we'll see that uh, expounded to speak of the nations of the world uh, and Matthew 25 speaks of the sheep and the goats. Uh, it likens the nations of the world to either one of those, depending on how they have treated Israel. And this book is very much centered on Israel. We said last time, there, Israel referred to as my people, God speaking. And God refers to himself as the God of Israel. And then we have the people of the Lord of hosts. That's speaking of Israel. And then it's the Lord their God. And we see that way of escape is promised. That's where we ended last week. And then in chapter 3, uh, it goes on to speak about this national regathering and restoration of Israel. So we'll, we'll get into all that in a second. And once again, we have her God, the King of Israel, the Lord thy God, speaking of Israel's God. You know, it just amazes me how we have so many in this country and around the world that get deceived into this belief of uh, replacement theology, the idea that God has somehow given up on Israel and that now the church is the new Israel. I mean, that's a, an expression you don't find anywhere in the Bible. And there's no hint in the Bible that God has replaced Israel and that the church is now to, to take over. Uh, and everything we read about from these prophets through to what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, 11, and in Galatians, God clearly has a plan for Israel. And God is faithful. God is a God that keeps his covenant. And one of the great encouragements that come out of this book is that because we see that God is faithful in his relationship with Israel, it should give us great comfort to know that God is faithful in his relationship with us. You know, how horrible would it be if we went through life thinking that if we blew it, God would just cast us aside? And yes, that's the mindset of those that adopt this kind of replacement theology that God has finished with Israel. That Israel sinned and God said, that's enough, off you go. If that was the God we served, we wouldn't have any confidence. That's very much like the gods of other religions. You can't trust them, you don't know what they're going to do. Not so with the God of the Bible. Well, the key phrase as we said last time, is the day of the Lord. The phrase only occurs twice, although it is alluded to many times. 21 times in the Bible we have that phrase given to us. Um, but 12 times in this book, that the, the, the idea of the day of the Lord is mentioned by different names, the day of Jehovah, the day of Jehovah's sacrifice, the day of Jehovah's wrath and anger, and so on. So we, we see this book very much focused upon the day of the Lord. Now, every time, it's always a reference to what is coming for us now, yet future. It speaks of that time of tribulation that is detailed so much in Scripture. Of course, Revelation gives us a lot of detail about that. 
But then books like Daniel and other books also give us a lot of the information to know that we have a seven-year period that is coming upon this world. And it's a time when God will pour out his wrath upon this unbelieving and Christ-rejecting world. The good news is that God has promised to remove his people before that time of judgment comes, as God is always consistently doing in, through Scripture. So again, the prophecies span history. It speaks to Israel at the time of Zephaniah, but it also speaks of our time. So there was the local event that was going on and all that happened in the Middle East around about 606 BC in the years that followed. But then it's also, that's like the, 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 the matinee performance for what was later to come, uh, which is going to happen in our time. Again, Aaron Remmers made this comment. He said, the whole book makes it clear that Zephaniah looks far ahead of the imminent destruction of Jerusalem onto that dreadful day of Jehovah, the day of his anger and judgment, upon which, however, will follow the blessing of the millennial reign of peace. And we said as well last time that this is a fairly common theme through Scripture, and we gave a couple of examples last week, so I don't need to go through it again. But there are many occasions in Scripture where we see this, what sometimes scholars refer to as the law of double reference. And it's simply this, that the law observes that the fact, sorry, the fact that often a passage or block of Scripture is speaking of two different persons or two different events that are separated by a long period of time. Many, many examples of that. And you should be sensitive of that as you read through the Bible. Of course, we have uh, Elijah and John the Baptist. That's another one of those type of models. And there's many uh, that we see in the Bible. Okay, so let's jump in. I'm going to start from the beginning of chapter two. We only got up to verse three last week. Um, So we'll we'll do the whole of chapter two, but I won't spend as long on the first three verses, obviously. So it starts again with this judgment on the Gentiles because of their sins as the nations around Judah um, they were going to get the full force of God's wrath because of their iniquity. Now, once again, other prophets had warned these Gentile nations, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, and so on, but those Gentile nations did not repent. They ignored the warning that was given to them, just like the world today. But, of course, God is going to punish them because of the way they treated Israel, because of their pride and because of their idolatry, worshipping false gods. But as we say, God gives them first the opportunity to repent. So verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, Gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So God gives these Gentile nations an opportunity to repent before his wrath comes upon them. And then this verse that we majored on at the end of our session last week, verse 3 of Zephaniah chapter 2, a great promise. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be that you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. It's a great promise that is consistent with everything we see in Scripture. Yet it's God's character to remove the righteous before his wrath falls on the ungodly. And there are a number of examples we can sign, particularly we see it with Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, there the situation is that God sends his angels to destroy the city, but they go in and they speak to Lot and to Lot's family, and they bring Lot and his wife and his two daughters out. 
And it makes it really clear that, that God explains through the angels to Lot that God cannot bring judgment upon this city until the righteous are removed. Because God is a, a faithful God. God is a just God. Now, a lot of people speak about the rapture and they try and relegate it to a uh, just a trivial theological issue. And some people believe in it, some people don't. I would argue that it's far more serious than that. The issue about the rapture is, do you believe the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to pay for your sin? That, to me, is the issue of the rapture of the church. It's a very serious point because if Jesus died and paid for every sin in our life and we are cleansed and clean before God, God cannot leave us on earth during the tribulation. Because very clearly from Isaiah 12, 11, 12, 13, so on, and many other passages, we are told that the tribulation is God's wrath poured out on this earth. And if God leaves us on this earth, whilst he's pouring out his wrath on this earth, and we are in any way subject to that, then God is judging us twice. It's inconsistent with God's character and God's nature. You see, God has paid for our sin. And because of that, Jesus made that great declaration in John 14 to the disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them and that he would come again to receive them to himself. The way he is there, we would be also. And many other passages in the New Testament make it clear that God will remove us before he brings wrath. Why? Because our sin has already been paid for at the cross. And so when God judges this world during the tribulation, there won't be believers here. Now, there will be people that will come to know the Lord after the church is raptured. Guess what happens? The Lord removes them also. The Lord will then pull them out. There'll be like a second rapture midway through the tribulation, uh, sometimes referred to as the tribulation saints, people that come to know the Lord, they will also be taken out, as will the Jews, 144,000 Jews that will minister during that time, seemingly believing Messianic Jews. Whether they are, uh, well, uh, presumably they will be Jews that will come to know the Lord after the church is taken. And they minister during that period of time. And they also are taken out. And then we get to the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And we find that God's wrath is poured out in full measure upon the earth. No believer will be here during that time at all. All the Gentiles will be gathered in. Why is that significant? Well, because when is it that the blindness will be removed from Israel, according to Paul? The blindness is going to be removed from Israel when the fullness of the Gentiles are gathered in. And so when God has removed all the Gentiles, all those that will come to faith, either prior to the rapture, or prior to the tribulation, or in the early part of the tribulation, they will all be removed, then Israel's eyes will be opened. And that's when the fullness of the Gentiles will be in, the Gentiles, will, the Jews will see, and that will then bring about that last uh, sequence of events that leads up to the Lord's return. So that's what's coming. Now, we go on. So this is that's where we kind of got to last week. So picking up now in verse 4, this you know, judgment is kind of spoken of to these surrounding nations of Israel. And this, we start with the Philistines. Now, we're feeling familiar with this. For Gaza shall be forsaken. Now, we know all about Gaza because we see it on the news so often. Yeah, we know the enemies of Israel occupy that piece of land. And they are intent on trying to destroy Israel. But this was the place historically that the Philistines dwelt. 
And we're given here the, the principal cities. Uh, it says, for Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon, a desolation. And they shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday and Ekron shall be rooted up. They're, they're all Philistine cities. There was five key Philistine cities. And then it goes on, woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. Now, we, you don't hear much about them in Scripture, but clearly they were a group. Um, there were alliances made with some of the ungodly in Israel with these, and they've gone into their worship. Some people think that um, there's a, a connection with the uh, worship of Molech and so on. But it says, the word of the Lord is against you. That's not a good thing. Because the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And if the word of God is against them, that's, that's not a good place to be. And it says, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines, I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. God's very clear. They're going to be wiped off. And how many Philistines have you ever met? Do you know anybody? Or anybody that says they're descended from a Philistine? They've been destroyed. The memory of them is just lost in the the sands of time. If it were not for the records and the accounts we have in Scripture, you probably wouldn't even hear of them. But, of course, their land... It's interesting to note, and I've only just been finished reading through the book of Joshua, but there were some areas of Israel that Joshua failed to conquer. They were to drive out the inhabitants of Canaan when they moved in because of their idolatry, because of the practices they were involved in, and also because this was a land infested with giants. We know that because the children of Israel didn't want to even go into the land to start with because of this giant problem. A lot of people think that's just myth and so on. Well, actually, all the legends we have about giants came from somewhere, and the Bible tells us where. It was because Satan had this plan to try and infest the land of Israel with these offspring of the fallen angels and the women of the earth, these giant beings, to try and stop the seed of the woman, the Messiah, coming into this world. And once God had said that this was going to be the land, Abraham's family was to be the family, in a sense, Satan had a target to aim for. And that's why there was so much conflict with these nations. And we have accounts, of course, as Joshua, uh, well, Moses initially and then Joshua carrying on, started to rid the land of these beings. Uh, there were some fearsome individuals. And, of course, the one we're very familiar with is Goliath. Goliath, of course, had four brothers and so on. But interestingly, as I say, there was areas that Joshua did not conquer. He was supposed to have done. They didn't. They kind of stopped short. And one of those areas was the area of Gaza. Another area was what we today refer to as the West Bank, and another area, the Golan Heights. How interesting that to this day, those areas have been a problem for Israel. The areas that they didn't put their foot and God give them victory are the areas they still have trouble to this day. Now, the Philistines were destroyed, but God is making it clear here in the bigger picture that those that now inhabit that land will also be destroyed. And ultimately, the land will return to being Israel's land when the Messiah returns, when Jesus returns. Verse 6, we carry on. And the seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks. So it's saying that these places that were once inhabited by Israel's enemies are going to be a place where there'll be building, there'll be cottages there, there'll be shepherds and there'll be sheep. There'll be a time of prosperity. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. So this area that Judah have never been able to inhabit before because their enemies have been there, suddenly they'll have these beachfront properties. It'll be a wonderful blessing that will fall upon them. And they shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening. It speaks of being at rest, being in peace. For the Lord their God, notice the expression, 
There is no other nation on earth that can use that expression, the Lord their God. That's only Israel. And it's because God chose Abraham because of his faith and promised him that he would make of him a great nation. And so the nation, of course, that descends from Abraham is the nation through whom the Messiah comes. And, of course, through whom the word of God is given to the world. For the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. Well, that's something that the Jews know a lot about. They know a lot about captivity right from these days. In fact, even before that, I'm reading through at the moment, just going through the book of Judges, and you just read of one problem after another with the nations around Israel bringing them into servitude. And, of course, then the Assyrians come, the Babylonians. And then following that, we have, of course, the Greek Empire, the Romans, and all that history has shown us since this time, leading up to, of course, the Holocaust. I mean, if any nation knows anything about captivity, it's Israel. Notice the statement there. It says, and the coast shall be for the remnant. Who is the remnant? Well, it's speaking, of course, in this context of those who survive the tribulation. We're told that two out of every three Jews will not make it through the tribulation. That's a really scary picture. It's why we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for what's coming upon them. Verse 8. I've heard the reproach of Moab and the revelings of the children of Ammon. Or sorry, revilings. So the revilings of the children of Ammon. Whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. (laughs) Come back to that in just a second. Verse 9. Therefore, as I live saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. See again this expression. The God, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is the Lord of heaven's armies is the one who is watching over and protecting Israel. And it says, surely Moab shall be as Sodom. Well, we, of course, know the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah, completely destroyed. And the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. God making it clear that Moab and Ammon who had tried to, they had treated Israel harshly. They wouldn't allow Israel to pass through their land as Israel were coming into Canaan from the, after the exodus, after the time of wandering. And then continually oppressed or tried to oppress Israel. The Lord granted Israel victory over them on numerous occasions. But finally God is saying that they will be destroyed. They will be moved out of the land. But a couple of things just to to mention here. It speaks in verse 8 of this issue where these nations, Moab and Ammon particularly, have magnified themselves against their border. Okay, Now this is a very typical thing. Okay, Man is always bent or inclined to never be happy with what he's got, with his lot. All right, whatever we get, it's not enough. We want more. And you, you can prove this if, if, you, if ever you've seen a child with chocolate. You know, enough is never enough. In fact, it's not just children. Some wives are like that too. But, but we see it a number of times in Scripture. Dan were given this area to inhabit 
in the land. This, after the land of Canaan was divided up for the tribes of Israel. They weren't happy with it. They wanted more. And so they ended up getting an allotment at the top north of Israel. And what happened? Well, they were the first tribe to go into idolatry because they were on the border of the, the nations north of Israel. Dan is the first tribe to go into idolatry. Why? Because they weren't content with the borders that God had set. There's a reason that God gives us borders and boundaries in our lives. God gives boundaries in regard to relationships. And we're to follow them. If we don't follow them, we'll only end up hurting ourselves. You see, God's borders, God's boundaries are there for our protection. That's why when a parent says to a child, that's enough. It's not because the parent doesn't want the child to be happy. It's because the parent doesn't want the child to be sick. We don't know our own limits. We don't know. We just want more. We want more. And this is so common. And this is a situation that's being addressed here. God was saying they weren't content with the borders God had given them. Now, this is a very interesting thing because in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, we have a declaration there that God divided up the whole world amongst the nations of the world. And everybody had their own particular part. What are we seeing going on with Ukraine at the moment? Israel are not, uh, uh, Russia are not content with what they have. They want more. They want the Ukraine. And they'll argue that this was always part of us. And, you know, the, the, you've heard the arguments they're putting forward, but they're not content. But then what happens? I mean, they wanted Crimea, and then they, they kind of got that, and now they want the rest of Ukraine, and, and then what will happen? This is the verse from Deuteronomy. And it just says, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. You see, we have this assumption that, that we've decided, that mankind has decided the, the geographical boundaries. No, no, God says, I, I decided that. I mean, God gave Israel, the land of Israel, true, but he also gave all the nations their, their allotments. And when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people. Now, this is a really interesting statement. According to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. So the statement at the end there is that God chose Israel. Out of all the portions, he gave all the nations their own place of land. But Israel, he gave this piece of land that we refer to today as the land of Israel. There, again, his people. Now, this is interesting because in Genesis 46... Verse 27, we find the number given to us of the children of Israel. Who is Israel? Israel is Jacob. And it's told, and the sons of Joseph, which were born uh, him in Egypt, were two souls. All the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten. Seventy. Seventy children of Jacob who go down into Egypt. Now, I'm not going to spend long on this, but to take you very quickly, in Genesis 10, we have a really fascinating list of nations. Now, if you've ever read it, you may not think it's fascinating, but as you start to study, it really is incredible. We have the children of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From Japheth come these nations, Gomer, Magog, Kamede, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyre. Now, Gomer seems to be the German area or the area of Germany. Um, uh, Javan includes Tarshish, which I believe, I've said many times, I believe was the UK or Britain, as was. Uh, Magog seeming to be uh, the area around Russia. Uh, Meshach also, um, and Moscow, Tobolsk, all those kind of areas north. And that's where the descendants of Japheth migrated to, from Babel, after the languages were divided at the time of the Tower of Babel. 
As God comes down, destroys the tower, they're spread out. And they typically go into the areas of, as you see there, the north, which is Russia, directly north of Israel, but of course into Europe as well. And then we have the descendants of Ham. And we have, of course, Cush. We're very familiar with Cush. So much mythology comes out of the the things that he did. He was responsible for the Tower of Babel, along with his son, Nimrod. But Cush, you've heard of Bacchus, the Roman god. Well, that's Bar Cush. That's Nimrod, son of Cush. And all these ancient, uh, if you look at Greek mythology, Roman mythology, it all stems back to this. Misraim, that's the area of Egypt and the descendants that came from them, including the Philistines who came from that area. They eventually moved to Cyprus and then from Cyprus across to the land of Canaan where they, they settled. And then, of course, uh, Phut, which is Libya, and then Canaan. We know the land of Canaan and the, the descendants that came from that line, including uh, Saudi Arabia, Sheba, Dedan, and so on. There, that's where the descendants of Ham went, in North Africa typically, in the Middle East, and then including the Sinites or the Chinese also came from that group of people. And then we have the Shemites. That's where we get the word anti-Shemitic. It's the descendants of Shem, and specifically, of course, in reference to Israel. But anybody that's a descendant of Shem, technically the idea of anti-Shemitic, that's where the name comes from. And the line, of course, comes all the way down through Peleg, and it's his time, we believe, that's where the Tower of Babel occurred, that the earth was divided into these nations uh, that we have now with the languages being divided, the Tower of Babel. And it comes all the way down through Ru, Sarag, Nahor, Terah, and then Abraham, whom God uses and chooses to bring about the nation of Israel as we have today. And so the descendants of Shem very much stayed in the area of the Middle East. Now what's interesting, when you count all of those sons of Noah and the descendants that are specifically mentioned in Genesis 10, you have 70 nations. How many children of Israel went down to Egypt? 70. How many nations? 70. God says he numbered the nations according to the number of the children of Israel. That's no coincidence. Just have to share this with you because this is incredible. Because you look at all those nations and you may look at some of those names and you think, don't recognize those from history, weren't told about that in school. Well, you probably weren't. And one of the reasons is that we change the names of places. Okay, you're all familiar that Istanbul used to be called Constantinople. Okay, so we've changed the names of lots of places in the world. But the original names still have those historical roots there. Bill Cooper, in his book After the Flood, decided to take this as a challenge to prove the validity of the Bible. Let me read what he says. He said, it's commonly thought in this present age that nothing is worthy of our belief unless first it can be scientifically demonstrated and observed to be true. It was assumed without further inquiry that nothing, in, especially the earlier portions of the biblical record, could be demonstrated to be true and factual. This applied particularly to the book of Genesis. In other words, we were solemnly assured in the light of modern wisdom that historically speaking, the book of Genesis was simply not worth a paper it was written on. On the one hand, I had the Bible itself claiming to be the very word of God. On the other, I was presented with numerous commentaries that spoke with one voice in telling me that the Bible was nothing of the kind. It was merely a hodgepodge collection of Middle Eastern myths and fables that sought to explain the world in primitive terms. Now, it simply was not possible for both these claims to be valid. Only one of them could be right. So it was then that I decided to select a certain portion of Genesis 
and submit it to a test which, if applied to any ordinary historical document, would be considered a test of the most unreasonable severity. And I would continue that test until either the book of Genesis revealed itself to be a false account, or it would be shown to be utterly reliable in its historical statements. What I had not expected at the time was that the fact that the task was to engage my attention and energies for more than 25 years. The test that I devised was a simple one. If the names of the individuals, families, peoples, and tribes listed in the table of nations, and that's what we just looked at a moment ago, if they were genuine, then those same names should appear also in the records of other nations in the Middle East. So not only would they be in the Bible, there'd be other record of those nations. It was simply not realistic to expect that every name would have been recorded in the annuals of the ancient Middle East and would also have survived to the present day. I therefore would have been content to have found, say, 40% of the list vindicated. In fact, that would have been a very high achievement given the sheer antiquity of the Table of Nations itself and the reported scarcity of the surviving extra-biblical records from those ancient times. In other words, he's saying, you know, if I'd have found some, I'd have been happy, because we can't realistically expect we're going to find all of those, because it was such a long time ago, and, you know, a lot of them will be lost in the sands of time. That's, That's the point he's making. But when, over my 25 years of research, that confirmatory evidence grew past 40%, to 50%, and then 60% and beyond, it soon became apparent that modern wisdom in this matter was wide of the mark, very wide of the mark indeed. Today I can say that the names so far vindicated in the table of nations make up over 99% of the list. And I shall make no further comment on that other than to say that no other ancient historical document of purely human authorship could be expected to yield such a level of corroboration as that. And that should give you great confidence in the word of God. That list we have in Genesis 10 has been verified. Every single one of those nations, or 99% of that list, has been found on other documents or things that pertain to that time. We know it's a genuine historic account of nations and how they were spread out around the world. Let's jump back into the text. So it's because the likes of Moab and Ammon were not content with their boundaries that God said he was going to judge them. And in verse 10 goes on, this shall they have for their pride because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrible unto them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and men shall worship him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. So all these other false religions are going to be put down. God is going to be exalted. Everyone will know of God. Again, notice it's the people of the Lord of hosts. Again, people of God of Israel. And that title tells you that this is a people not to mess with. God is the God of heaven's armies. Verse 12 goes on and says, Ethiopians, also ye shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and against Assyria and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. And the flocks shall lay down in the midst of her, all the beasts of the nations. Both the cormorant and the bittern shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be in the thresholds for he shall uncover the cedar work. In other words, they're just going to be laid ruined, just as we know Nineveh was. In fact, it was over a thousand years 
way over that, that finally Nineveh was again discovered. It was actually about 15, 1600 years. No, more than that. Sorry. No, it's 2000 something. Do the maths. It was six, uh, 612 Nineveh was destroyed and it was in 1812 or so that it was discovered. So there you go. Do the maths. Huge long time. And it was absolutely just, it was a place where wild animals dwelt. There was no civilization there. This is, this is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am. <laughs> Interesting choice of phrase. There is only one I am, and that's God. And there is none beside me. How she is, and that's, that was her declaration. She's kind of saying she's like God. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down, and everyone that passes by her shall hiss and wag his hand. Go to the final chapter. Again, we're going to return now to the theme of the leaders in Jerusalem. They wouldn't listen to God's warnings. Do you know the verse Elia shared with us this morning? So at seek the Lord while he may be found. And this was really the, the warning that was going out to them. You know, see, God had corrected them, but they only then committed greater sin. And so the time had come for God to judge them. They'd be given opportunity. They rejected it. So let's look at this. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city, speaking of Jerusalem. She obeyed not the voice. She didn't seek the Lord while she had the opportunity. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. There's no other nation that can call God her God in the way that Israel could, and yet they allowed these things to perpetuate. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening walls. Speaking of the, the, the way they oppressed and ravished others, and they gnaw not uh, the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are lights and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. These are God's people. This is why God is speaking against them. The just Lord... Another interesting expression, isn't it? The just Lord. This is why he has to do this, because he is just. Is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste, that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man, that there is no, there is none inhabitant. It's interesting, isn't it? When you're committing a crime, you don't want the police to be present. That's not normally a, a good policy for those who would commit crimes. I'm not suggesting any of you would, of course. But Jerusalem was full of injustice, and God effectively says here that he's standing in the midst and watching everything. You, you, you've ever had one of those moments, I've had a number as a parent, where your child who's doing something that they shouldn't do suddenly looks around and they see you watching them. And the look on their face is priceless. Well, this is the kind of thing, only this isn't funny. Suddenly they become aware that God had been watching everything they were doing. How do you think the people of this world are going to react when they realize that God has been watching everything? 1 Corinthians 4, 5 speaks about nothing being hidden. That everything is going to be made known. Those hidden things of darkness. And people are going to stand before God and they'll realize they've been called out, that God saw everything. Everything's been recorded. Verse 7, I said, surely that will fear me. This is God speaking to Israel. Surely they would fear me. They will receive instruction. 
so their dwelling should not be cut off. You'd think that would be the case. Howsoever, I punished them. But they rose early and corrupted all their doings. Even though God allowed judgment upon the nation, and we see it through the times of the judges and through David's time and Solomon's time and after through the kings, God allowed oppression from other nations in order to turn their hearts back to him. You'd think that would have done it, but it didn't. And it says, but they rose early. What was it Aaliyah was sharing with us this morning about rising early to seek God? They were rising early to seek all of their corrupt ways. It is hard to fathom the depths that man can sink to. A man is hell-bent on his own destruction unless he humbles himself and turns to God. From verse 8 to 13 now, Zephaniah looks ahead to the last days when the people of Israel will be regathered to their land. They will call on him, serve him, and have nothing to fear. Verse 8 says, therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord. Yeah, it's something the Lord's been teaching us a lot recently, to wait, to wait upon him. We may not understand our circumstances, we may not understand the next steps, but ultimately we know that God is in charge. He's still on the throne. And you notice, wait, what I love about these expressions is that there's a qualification here, because it's wait, and then you notice, until. It's not wait indefinitely, it's wait until. Until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination, this is God speaking, is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them mine indignation. All my fierce anger for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. We are now thrown right forward in time. We're no longer looking just at the local nations surrounding Israel. This now takes us to the day of the Lord, what God is going to do. And notice God is going to gather all the nations. He's going to bring judgment upon them. He's going to assemble the kingdoms of the earth. And he says to Israel, wait. As hard as it's been for Israel to endure all they've gone through as a nation, wait until. You see, God sees, he knows. Matthew 25 then, we have this. Statement from Jesus, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Have you ever noticed that? Not only Jesus is going to come, but all the holy angels. One night, seemingly after supper, one angel slew 185,000 Assyrians. That's just one angel. Every time in scripture we see somebody confronted by or seeing an angel, they, they just don't know what to do with themselves. Which is why angels always, the first thing angels always say is, fear not. I mean, if they're speaking to somebody righteous, of course. If you're speaking to an unrighteous person, then probably fear is a good thing. When Jesus comes and all the holy angels with him, what an army that's going to be. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. That's the throne of David. The one that was promised to Mary that Jesus would one day sit on. And before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from the other, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king, Jesus, say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, that's the millennial kingdom, on this earth, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was, I'll just pause there, from the foundation of the world, when God was creating the earth. 
God created in six days, rested in the seventh. The millennial reign is a time of rest. That's why many people believe that we are so close to the end because we've had 6,000 years of human history. And Peter says that to the Lord a day is a 1,000 years. And I'm not putting that in as an exact measure, but it's an interesting pattern that we had six days and then a day of rest. We've had 6,000 years of history and then the millennium, which is to follow, is a period of a 1,000 years rest. It's an interesting pattern. And God says, Jesus says to them, for I was, the ones that have, have, these blessed ones are going to inherit the kingdom. He says, for I was hungered and you gave me meat. And I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? Well, look, the nations of the world, if they've done something spiritual in a sense, or to bless the church or help the church, they would be aware of that. I mean, yet they're confused. Well, when, Lord, did we do these things for you? When saw thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we the sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these my brethren. Who are Jesus' brethren? The Jews. Jesus was a Jew. He was born as a Jew. He grew up in a Jewish family, had Jewish brothers in the, in the flesh. You have done it unto me. If you treat Israel harshly, Jesus takes that personally. It's as if somebody were to come into your house and hurt your family. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Interesting statement because it shows that that hell was never intended for mankind. God does not send anybody to hell. People choose to go by rejecting Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus, there is only one other destination. People make that choice themselves. And people say, why would a God of love send people to hell? He doesn't. Why would people to whom God has given an intellect and a mind and a brain reject an offer of salvation so incredible as this? And God says, so Jesus says, for I was a hungered and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You took me not in naked and you clothed me not sick and in prison and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered or a thirst or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, again, speaking of Israel, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. That's exactly what Zephaniah is speaking about here. Verse 9 carries on. For then will I turn to the people, uh, or return to the people, a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. You know, the European Union is trying to undo the effects of Babel. They've made these statements. They've built the place in Strasbourg intentionally to look like the Tower of Babel from a, a painting that was done many, many years ago. And they've spoken about trying to re- return a kind of a common language to the world. And ultimately, we will end up with a one-world government. But that's going to fall, just like Babel originally fell. Babylon will also fall again. But God says, I am going to do it. And when God does it, it will succeed. He's going to return this pure language that he speaks about. 
that everybody's going to be able to worship the Lord. We'll all be on the same page. We'll all have the same understanding. Again, that which was divided at Babel will be joined together again at Jerusalem. And again, many scholars expect the Hebrew will be that pure language. So if you want to get ahead, start learning some Hebrew. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. Now, it might be that this verse is simply referring to the dispersed of Judah returning home to Israel. And certainly in Isaiah 11, it says it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand the second time. The first time is 1948. The second time will be at the second coming. To recover the remnant of his people who are left. It says he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. When Jesus returns, he will gather the remaining Jews that are not already back in the land, bring them back to the land. As the verse 10 of Zephaniah 3 may well be just a reference to that, bringing in the dispersed. But there's an interesting line here. It says, they shall bring my offering from Ethiopia. Now, I'm not going to spend a long time on this. It will be in the notes, and by all means, read through this. But this is another allusion to a gift being presented to the Lord from Ethiopia. Now, we have a reference in Isaiah 18, verse 7, to exactly the same thing. And I just wonder whether this has anything to do with what we read about in Acts 25. Oh, sorry, Acts chapter 8, verse 25 through 40. Because we have the situation, I'm not going to read all the text, but where this Ethiopian eunuch who was the treasurer of the queen had come to Jerusalem. Why? Well, clearly he'd heard that there were things going on in Jerusalem and there were many people claiming the Messiah had come. And he comes, this treasurer, the one that's responsible for all the wealth of the land, comes to Jerusalem, but then goes home again, confused. And Philip is the one that ends up running alongside the chariot and he hears him reading from Isaiah and he explains what he's reading, that the Messiah had to come and suffer, this suffering servant. In other words, yeah, the Messiah has come, but this isn't. There's another coming. Jesus is going to return in glory, and so it's almost as if the the, the Ethiopian eunuch goes back home and says to the queen, "Not yet." You see, he has something to bring. Again, chief treasurer. Why reading the Jewish scripture? What was he trying to uncover? Why does the Holy Spirit give us this encounter anyway? I'm not going to go into it. I'm going to leave this in the text because of the time, but I encourage you to have a look through this. But it seems to be that the Ark of the Covenant during the reign of Manasseh was taken down to Ethiopia. For a time, it was at Aswan on Elephantine Island, which was on the border of Ethiopia. And then finally, it moved on to an island in Lake Tanis. And there's some really, really strong, compelling evidence behind this. And it remained there for a long, long time. Finally, it was removed from there to this place in Ethiopia today at Aksum. And it's believed by the Ethiopians that the Ark of the Covenant resides there to this day, awaiting the return of the Messiah. Now, I'll leave this down. I'm not going to read all of this. But the people at Aksum in Ethiopia absolutely believe that within that building you can see there is housed underground the Ark of the Covenant. There's an armed guard there continually. There is one individual who's said to be a priest, descended from the the Jewish priest, who his entire lifetime stands guard. Nobody's allowed to go in and see it, but the Ethiopian people celebrate regularly the fact 
that they believe they have the art. They genuinely believe. In fact, there's more than 20,000 churches that have a replica of the ark in Ethiopia. This is fascinating. Again, I'll let you read all of that. There's a lot of information there. Just out of curiosity, it's fascinating. I'm not saying this is absolutely true and it's going to be, but it's so interesting and it creates a really interesting picture. Why? Well, because the ark was made out of wood covered in gold. But on top of the ark, there was what was referred to as the mercy seat, made of solid gold. Now, after thousands of years, what state is that wood? I don't know. Maybe it's crumbled. Maybe it's, it's no good anymore. But the seat, the bit on the top, the lid, effectively, and of course within the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments and the, the Aaron's rod and other bits and pieces and some manna. But the lid was made of solid gold. That means it won't decay over time. Why is it interesting? Because I think that seat will be the very throne upon which the Messiah will sit when he rules from Jerusalem. And Ethiopia will bring this present back. And then we have here in Zephaniah another allusion to a gift being brought from Ethiopia back to Israel when the Messiah returns. And I believe that's exactly why this Ethiopian eunuch had come up to Jerusalem. Is, is now the time to bring the gift? No, not now. Not yet. And they're waiting. And the Ethiopian, even on their, 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 their governmental websites, they state they believe absolutely conclusively that they have the Ark of the Covenant. We'll see. In that day shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride. And thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also, it's just interesting, let me just quickly mention that, because Israel had boasted that God would never destroy Jerusalem because it was God's place and you know, we're safe here and they could do whatever they want. And God says, you're not going to be haughty because of my holy mountain. The reason it's holy is because of God. God says there's going to come a time that that pride and that arrogancy that Israel had experienced will be gone. I'll also leave in the... Uh, live in the midst of thee, and afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Interesting, Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. And a few verses later on in verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. Well, that is going to be the prayer of Israel. They will be a, an afflicted and poor people. Not poor necessarily in terms of financial, but spiritually. Recognizing their own condition. And they will trust in the name of the Lord. What a transformation. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Again, what a transformation. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Israel are going to come to that place. So the last section, the people now rejoice and sing because their discipline has come to an end. The enemy has been defeated and the Lord is their king. But interestingly, God also is going to sing. What's that going to be like? Like a loving father, he takes his fearful children in his arms and quiets them with his love. You've all seen at times a baby that's distraught or upset. And when a parent picks up that child and holds it, that sense of peace. That's how it's going to be for Israel. Let's just run to the end of the chapter then. So sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart. 
O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away thy judgments. He has cast out thine enemy. Oh, you think of the, the how long question. This is the answer. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. God's presence back with them. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not, and to Zion, let not thy hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly, who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee. In other words, it was saying, I will undo. Anybody that tries to afflict them will be undone, is what it's saying. And I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out. God's promising healing and restoration, bringing them back. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. What's it going to be like when everybody in the world realizes that Israel were God's people? They were his nation from the start. How much shame is there going to be? amongst the leaders of the nations of this world and regarding their foreign policies. It says, we fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. That's the God we worship. That's the God we trust, a God who is faithful in keeping his promises. And though we wait, though we're told sometimes it may tarry, wait for it, because it will come to pass. The Lord will do all that he said he's going to do for Israel and for you. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you this morning for this opportunity to look at these things and be encouraged because of your faithfulness, your goodness, your justice. Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, like we've never trusted you before, regardless of the situation or circumstances. Lord, that you say to us, wait, but there's always an until. Oh, Lord, be glorified in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.